going to read God's Word together, and first of all, we're going to read from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, starting at the second verse. These words. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with Him and led them up on a high mountain, and they were all alone. There He was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before him Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. Peter said, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He he didn't know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone. Now, we're going to read from the book of Hebrews, and we're reading from the first chapter. In fact, we're going to read the whole of the first chapter of the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, verse 1, these words. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, He's spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, and through whom He also made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. After he had provided purification for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have become your father, or again, I will be his father and he will be my son? And again, when God brings His firstborn into the world, He says, let all God's angels worship Him. In speaking of the angels, He says, He makes His angels spirits and servants of of flames of fire. But about the Son, He says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be a scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, In the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. When they perish, you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment they will be changed, but you remain the same, and your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. For since the message spoken through the angels was binding, and every violation of its its disobedience received its punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great 
salvation. This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard Him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. Amen. And thanks be to God for His Word. Let's pray. Father, as we think this morning on this first chapter of the book of Hebrews, we ask that You would bring us close to Jesus, and we ask nothing more. Amen. If I can have the screen. The congregation were exhausted. They were tired. They were tired of serving the world. They were tired of worship. They were tired of Christian teaching. They were tired of being seen as peculiar and whispered about by outsiders. They were tired of the spiritual struggle. They were tired of trying to keep their prayer life going. They were even tired of Jesus. Attendance was down at church. Some of the folk had stopped coming. Others came less frequently. The danger was not that they were doing the wrong things or charging off in the wrong direction. In fact, they didn't have the energy to charge anywhere at all. They were worn down and worn out and ready to pack it in and drift away. I wonder, do you recognize that congregation? I wonder if you went around Scotland today and, and looked at the congregations of the Church of Scotland, indeed the congregations of other denominations as well, that as you look at that picture that I have just read, you might think it fitted quite well. An exhausted, beat-up church full of exhausted people who are just about hanging in there, maybe. But actually, that description doesn't come from Scotland at all. It doesn't come from this generation at all. It comes from a commentary written on the book of Hebrews, describing the congregation to which the letter to the Hebrews was written. And this book, as we have a look at it, will seem very, very different from our life today, but in another sense, perhaps as we heard that description, we think, ah, maybe there's something that we've got in common here. You know, there's sometimes when you read things in Scripture, they just stick in your mind. And one of the verses that stuck in my mind as I've looked at Hebrews over the years is chapter 12, verse 12, where it says, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees and make a level path for your feet. And I'm just thinking of somebody with feeble arms and weak knees. And what it's talking about here isn't someone with physical disabilities. It's talking about a mental state of mind. Do you ever feel weak arms, weak knees, like you're drooping? And it talks about a level path for your feet, like you're tripping over everything because you're walking a bit exhausted. Is that you? Yeah? You're, <laughs> you're getting there, but it's a vivid picture, isn't it? And I guess it's how we often all feel about our spiritual lives. And we can go further than that in the book of Hebrews, because here's chapter 10, verse 25. It says, do not give up the habit of meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another more and more. And what's obviously going on here is in this congregation, people are getting so dispirited that some folk are, 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 are just stopped coming. 
to whatever meetings they have. And other folk are there less and less frequently, and everybody's feeling discouraged. And maybe that's how we feel today. Actually, we have this idea that we should be singing God's praise, and we should be full of glory, and we should be saying, Amen, hallelujah, clap your hands, and all the rest of it. But actually, what about Monday morning? Does it really feel like that? So, the book of Hebrews, what does the writer do, this preacher do, as he comes to this congregation? Does he give them a, a good kick up the backside and, and, and tell them that they should buck up their standards and they've got work to do and all the rest of it? Well, yes, he will do that. He will at times not hit and miss the wall. But actually, that's not where he starts. Nor does he come and say, well, you know, I, and I, I could have done that this morning. Here's a new mission plan with five marks of mission, and here's all the things we should be doing. Here's a new technique to change your worship so it'll be much more encouraging. And, and, and here's a new plan for youth development. He doesn't do any of that. Instead, he comes and he preaches a sermon. It starts off with lofty words. In the past, God spoke through our ancestors, the prophets, in many times in various ways. But in this last days, He's spoken by His Son. And what this letter does, and it's written with incredible rhetorical skill. It's one of the best written letters in the whole of the New Testament. And it comes uh, line after line after line of, of, of deep preaching of the Word of God. In fact, at the end of it, the, the, the preacher says, this was a short letter. Thirteen chapters. But there it is. And as he does that, he moves through the whole of the Old Testament. And as he goes through the whole of the Old Testament, he's explaining all that it does and all that it points to as it points to Jesus. What he's saying to these tired and exhausted people is what you need is to stop for a moment and not look at what's going on around you and not look at your own strength. But I want you to look at this Jesus that you are following. If you go to many churches um, in the Catholic or Greek Orthodox tradition, what you will find are lots and lots of pictures painted round walls. You'll have done that when you've gone on holiday places. All sorts of biblical scenes and, and things that are happening. We've actually got quite a lot of that in the stained glass windows. So sometimes we miss them, but they're there. But often in the Greek Orthodox Church, what they will do, as well as decorating all the walls, is they will take the ceiling and they will paint a huge picture of Jesus looking down on you. Now, I'm sure it creeps out the children, <laughs> but there it is. And they call it Pantocrator, which really means the one who rules everything. And the idea is that as you lift your eyes, you are reminded in worship that the Lord Jesus is bigger than everything, that the Lord Jesus rules over absolutely everything. And as you come tired and weary and feeling your strength's not enough and you don't know why you're there and you're not quite sure what you believe, you're encouraged to lift yourself up and see this Jesus. And in a sense, that's what the whole of the book of Hebrews is. It's one massive, big, verbal picture that says, let us look at Jesus and let that transform 
everything that we're doing. A few bits about the book of Hebrews, because I'm going to spend a few weeks on this over the coming months. First thing is, you might ask, who wrote it? Um, Well, let me tell you in two words. We have no idea. Simple answer. Uh, All we're told in in chapter 2 is that the, the good news was first announced by the Lord and confirmed to those of us who heard him, which suggests that it's not written by one of Jesus' disciples or anyone who knew Jesus during his earthly ministry, but it's known, it's, it, it's written by someone who knew the people who knew Jesus, if that makes sense. So it, it, it could be someone like Paul's generation, but we know it's not Paul because we've got lots of Paul's letters and Hebrews is very different, very different in how it's written, it's grammar, everything else. Some people have said it might be Barnabas that wrote it or Apollos that wrote it. They've suggested others. I've heard Luke suggested, but we don't know. So let me go on from that that we don't know to ask, who is it written to? Who received it? And the answer is, no idea. That that was short. We don't know who received it. In fact, the word Hebrews that's tied to it was put on some decades after it was written. But what we do know is that the Old Testament themes in it are so strong and so deep that many people think, and probably rightly, that it was written to a group of Jews who had become Christians in that first generation. And in fact, that's why it was very quickly called the book of the Hebrews, because the Hebrews was a word that Jews would sometimes use on themselves. We know that Paul said at one point, I am a Jew, I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. So, it's, it's, it's been given the title Hebrews. Now, what we also know is that the people who received it were being persecuted. And that might explain something, because if they were being persecuted for being Christians, it might have been quite tempting for them to say, well, if we dump the Jesus bit and go back to the Old Testament, go back to our Jewish roots, then it'll be a bit easier for us. Not that Jews had an easy time in the Roman world, they didn't, but they'd been around long enough that the Romans sort of had given them a grudging acceptance that perhaps the Christians didn't get. And also, if many of them had come from a Jewish background, then being a Christian might be something that caused them more conflict with their Jewish communities, with part of their own families. So it might have been tempting for them just to give up, forget Jesus, and go back to being just plain Jews. Let's dig in a little bit, and I'm going to relieve you in saying I'm only going to talk about the first three verses. He begins, in the past God spoke to our ancestors, which again would fit in with with Jews, through the prophets in many times and ways, but in these last days He has spoken through His Son. And that, in some ways, sums up the first 10 of the 13 chapters of Hebrews, because what the writer is going to do is take us through Moses and the wilderness and Sinai and the law, the promised land, the priesthood, the tabernacle, the covenant, the sacrificial system, and in a word, he's going to say, as he goes through all of these things, see how they all point to Jesus. Jesus is the true place where you meet with God. Jesus is the new covenant. Jesus is the sacrifice beyond all sacrifices. Jesus is the one who stands between God and men as priests have done in the past. Jesus is the one that all of the prophets point to. And it reminds me of a story from the New Testament, the story of the walk to Emmaus. Remember, 
Jesus had been crucified, and there are two disciples, and they are walking to Emmaus on Easter evening. And we might imagine them with their floppy arms and their, their, their knees that night. Everything's gone wrong. It just, they're just completely disillusioned. And Jesus comes along beside them, but they don't know it's Him. And they ask some questions. And we're just simply told in Luke that He began with Moses and the prophets to explain how all of this pointed to Him. And after they realize it's Jesus, they say, we remember how our hearts were strangely warmed as He opened up the Scriptures to us. He began to encourage us with what God had done. It was as if when they, when they heard the Old Testament told by Jesus, they started to say, ah, see how the law, we could never keep it, but it points to our need of a Savior. See how the sacrifices, we always wondered those animals being killed in the temple, what was that all about? How could they forgive our sins? That points to the cross. What about the temple? That place where there was those markers that said how difficult it was to come into the Holy of Holies. Oh, that points to how God Himself has to provide the way. Chapters 1 and 2 has a whole lot of talk about angels. Now, the reason for that is simply this, that there seemed to be at that point in, in Judaism a, a belief that all the things that happened in the Old Testament had happened through angels. Angels were the ones that called Moses. Angels were the ones that looked after Moses. Angels were the ones that had led them through the, 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 looked after them in, in the wilderness years. Angels are the ones who brought the law down on Mount Sinai. And so, they were quite fascinated at that time, the Jews, by angels. And the writer is saying, look, forget the angels. Jesus, remember? He is just so much more important. Now, I'm not going to talk a lot about angels this morning because I doubt that many of us are in danger of sort of getting obsessed with angels and forgetting Jesus. But there are other things, good things, that sometimes we are tempted to overplay and play down Jesus. You know, today, a lot of folk recognize that there is a spiritual need, uh, and they need the presence of God in their lives, but, you know, they'll say things like, well, I, you know, at church and, uh, and the Bible and, and Christ are not so important to me. I, I, I feel close to God as I walk in my garden or on my golf course or as I go into the hills. Or as people live life, very many folk will say, including people who will call themselves Christians, well, I, I don't need Jesus so much because actually I get lots of fulfillment in my family, in the food I enjoy, in my career, in, in the good things that I have around me. And I'm thankful for those things. And, you know, Jesus and church and the Bible, yeah, that's all right. It has its place, but it's not the most important thing. Or, or, or practical living. There's folk that get so much involved in doing great work in community, and that's fantastic, but they're tempted to say, you know, that's how I show my faith. And, and, and you know, church, Bible, prayer, not so important. You see how it happens. These good things get elevated, but somehow Jesus is being downplayed. And yet, here is what the writer says. In these last days, he's spoken by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he made the universe. Now, this is absolutely mind-blowing. 
You see what he's saying here? Think about who Jesus is. This is the big, he is the heir of all things. He is the point of all things. He is God's plan for everything that there is. You talk about your families, you talk about good works, you talk about the justice that's needed in the world. Whatever you talk about, God is working that through in Jesus. And, and, and why is that? Because he's the ultimate meaning of creation. He's the ultimate fulfillment of what your hearts are craving. He's the ultimate redeemer. And it's not surprising because when God made the world, he made it. This is an enormous Christian claim that's made really, really early that the whole world was created through Jesus. And so the whole world will find its fulfillment in Jesus. Remember that verse from the beginning of John's gospel? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And through him, all things were made that have been made the totality of Jesus. Now, actually, this explains some of the things that we said a little bit earlier. When people say, I, I feel close to God on the hills and the garden, uh, outside in nature, they're absolutely right. But you know why that is? Because Jesus made these things. The earth, says the psalmist, proclaims the glory of God. It's not much surprise that you get a sense of God in these things because they're made by Him. Jesus made the hills. Jesus danced in the gardens before Adam was born. So suddenly, all those things make sense. So yeah, the garden is good, but it's good because it points to Jesus. Don't mistake these good things for the ultimate, the Pantocrator, the one who rules over all. And we can go further than that. The enjoyment of life that we have, all the good things that we enjoy in life, yeah, they're great, but they're great because they're gifts of God. And they're great because they've come through the one who came that you might have life in the fullness. And do you get some fulfillment in these things? Yes, of course you do. But the ultimate fulfillment is the one who gave you these things. It's like saying, I love the gifts my parents give me. Of course you do. But they're not given that you might love the gifts. They are given that you might see the one who has given them to you and know him. The care of others all points to Jesus. In fact, you know, we, we, we looked as a, before at the five marks of mission, the different things that the church is called to do. And I, I did think about preaching through each one of these. But you know, every single one of them has the same thing in common. We proclaim the good news, the good news of Jesus. We make disciples to people to live for Jesus, that our lives might be full of Him. We do justice in the world. We do that because ultimately Jesus is the one who will bring justice in the world. We love the creation. Why? Because it too is redeemed in the resurrection of Jesus who made it. All of these things make sense. And in fact, you see, our Christian faith cannot just be about spirituality or Sundays. It must be about the totality of the whole of our lives. Politics, economics, life in the womb, sexuality, gender, marriages, work, money, science, the arts, medicine, all of these things as Christians, we approach as we come to God's Word and say, what is Jesus? What is Christ saying to us about all of these things? You know, the humanist looks out and sees the stars and says, this is wonderful, See what we can understand of them through our science. And the Christian says, yes, I agree, but you're only seeing 0.1%. The rest of it is Christ 
who made all these things. And when I look at the stars, I worship Him, the Lord of all. The writer goes on to say that the sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. Just like the rays of the sun connect with the sun, so Jesus is the one in whom we see God. He's the exact representation of His being. This is how we think about God. That's why our minds are changed. We don't just have a God who is remote, but we rethink our whole nature of God as we read about Jesus. Now, I could preach 16 sermons on those two verses. It's all right, I'm not going to. But there is so much there. You know, we come to church and we sing these hymns. O God, our help in ages past, in Christ alone, rock of ages, crown Him with many crowns. Jesus is Lord, creation's voice proclaims it. Rejoice, the Lord is King. You see what we're doing when we, when we, we sing these things? What we are doing is we are putting that picture back up before us of Jesus over all things. Not just that we might, that we might praise Him, but that we might get an idea that He is the focus of our very existence, and that everything else that we will do through the whole week, all our relationships are lived out under that, as part of that, are made sense in that. And I do think that what Christians need to do, and what we all need to do, is, is use the time that we have together to capture that picture of Jesus that might transform how we live, and how we trust, and how we think in every aspect of our life. I... Uh, looked at the BBC's website the other day, and there was a whole story about Taylor Swift, who my children tell me is a singer. No, I'm not that, not that out of touch. But the, the story actually is, is, is quite interesting. She's just brought out a new music video, and the music video hints about her future plans and the album she's going to re-release. But there were two massive big stories on it. Why was that? Why was it so important it hit the BBC News? And the answer is because Taylor Swift has hundreds of thousands of fans. And those fans don't just listen to her music and quite like her music. They are interested in every part of her life. They're picking through things to try to understand what's going on in her life, what she's thinking, what her views are and different things. That's what you do when you're a music fan, isn't it? Maybe for you it's been somebody else. I'm not going to date us all by, by seeing who our big fans have been. But you know, when you're really into something, it's not just about the music, it's about the whole thing. If you're into football, you tend not just to be into the match. You're actually into the score and the position in the league and who the manager is and whether they got sacked or 19 minutes or whatever it was. That's what fans do. But can you imagine a fan club that came and listened to Taylor Swift's music but never spoke about it? Never put any posters on their wall. Never talked to anybody about Taylor Swift. Didn't really pay any attention to her biography. Never recommended her music to anybody else. Just went around with their headphones. And yet sometimes that's what we're doing as Christians. We come into church, we listen to the gospel, we sing the hymns, we light all that stuff, but then we go and have coffee and nobody mentions God. And that sets us up for the rest of the week. 
as we go out and do everything without any reference to God at all, sometimes not opening our Bibles, not even praying, and then we come back in for another dose. That's strange. And it's selling us short because this gospel is supposed to do so much more than this. Here's what one commentator says. How can you live your life with the terrifying thought that the hurricane became human, that the fire became flesh, that life itself came and walked in our midst? Christianity either means that or it means nothing. It's either more devastating disclosure of the deepest reality of the world or it's a sham, a nonsense, a bit of deceitful play-acting. Most of us, unable to cope with saying either of those things, condemn ourselves to live in the shadow world in between. And that's where we end up, like that. And so, Hebrews comes and says, let me remind you who this Jesus is. Not just that you might worship, but it might have an enthusiasm for Him that changes and transforms and enriches your life for Him, that sees every part of your, your thinking is changed by Him, that makes it natural for you to want to talk about Him because He fills all time and space. May that be true for us.